bring everyone together for a great time with the Nintendo Switch system. Get the whole family in on the fun with exciting games that everyone can enjoy, like Super Mario Bros. Wonder, Animal Crossing, New Horizons, and more. Nintendo Switch has three different play modes all in one system. Play in TV mode, tabletop mode, or handheld mode when you're on the go. Visit nintendo.com slash us slash switch to learn more. Games rated E for everyone. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to Star Talk. Your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. I also serve as director of the Hayden Planetarium right here. And I've got with me as my intrepid co-host, Eugene Merman. Eugene. Hi. Comedian. How you doing, man? Good. Good to be here. So, so how things? You're like a regular in Bob's Bob's, Bob's Burgers. Burgers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're, you're like the kid, right? Yep. I'm the little boy. We're, we're recording the sixth season now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's cool. Yeah. If the Star Talk thing doesn't work out for you, you got a, another yes. job. <laughs> I have a backup plan of being on another television show. <laughs> You know, today we're featuring my interview with Chris Hadfield. Yeah. Chris Hadfield's like number one Canadian astronaut ever. Ever. And Is there a second Canadian astronaut? <laughs> no, I you know, I know some a thing or two about space, but I've never been in space. Yeah. And so I'm same not same thing with me. The same thing with you. So uh, so I didn't want to tackle this alone. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to our portfolio of friends of Star Talk, and guess who I found? Mike Massimino. Mike, welcome to Star Talk. <laughs> Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Mike, two-time shuttle astronaut? Yes. Each of those times you take care of my telescope? That's right. The, All, the world's telescope, the <laughs> Hubble telescope. My, I mean, the astrophysics yes, community. Yes, yours. Telescope. Everybody's, so, yes. Thanks for doing that. that that's, uh, it's been a, it was a privilege. A that's pleasure. cool. So, so you're, are you retired now from NASA? Well, I'm too young to retire. Can you imagine that? They told me I was too young, but I'm, I left NASA. You left so, NASA, yes, and so uh, now you're on the faculty at Columbia? I am. At the Department of Mechanical Engineering? That's right. Because yep. you're, you're an engineer dude from way back. That's right. Yeah, that's what that's what I uh, was trained as, and I got to do a lot of hands-on engineering. On so you're an engineer that became an astronaut, not that's someone correct. who was an astronaut out of the box. Right. I came, right. I, I came in the, I would say, the academic route. You okay. Know, I got my PhD and did some research. In engineering? As an, as an engineer. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Cool, cool. Yep. And also, we have another great museum here in New York, the Intrepid Air and Sea, Air and Space Museum. That's right. So you're an advisor to them in all the space. On their their space stuff. Yes, they have a Hubble exhibit there, and uh, I I really enjoy uh, getting a chance to go there. Cool, I got to come check it out. You should, yeah. Yeah, I'll give you a private tour. Oh, nice. I'll show you my tools. They've got got Hubble tools. Watch watch your language here. (laughs) Wrap it up, you flirt. No, the tools are part of the tour. The tools, are, yeah, the tools that you use tools. to right, fix the real hump. space tools. The actual space tools. The actual what are space they, tools. They, it's like a space wrench. <laughs> yes, and a, and a, a power tool, and yeah, it's and a you space can, drill. Is a, it a, just power, like, we call it a power tool? Drill. You know, you can get. You might make holes that you don't want to with that one. We call it a power tool. Power and tool. Yeah. what does it do? And mainly, it mainly unscrews things. We don't do too much drilling. 
Right, you don't so make a ton of holes. No, in the you don't hole. make a lot of holes. You, you make, this is not a good idea. But, you, but we, what we do is you, you use it to, uh, to, to fasten things, to unscrew things, to move things around. That's what the power tool is. It, it serviced the Hubble and also built the International Space Station. So, so do, you do, can see stuff like that. Are you friends uh, with Chris? Chris Hatfield? Oh, yeah. He's a great guy. He's a, a very good friend. Chris was, uh, he was on the space station for five months. Is that a long time, yeah. short time? That's about right. About, yeah, five, six months, uh, six-month tours. Uh, Scott Kelly's going to go up for a year. That's, just that's a to bit me, unusual. Since you went to the Hubble, it means yeah. you've never been to the space station. No, I am that's not. Two different, can you completely different orbits? From one no, to the other? completely different orbits. I know you can't. You can't do the George Clooney thing. Zipping around on a backpack or using a fire. You got him started. None yeah. of that. You have to get him work. started here. Oh, that's his thing. He's with the tweets with all of that. No, stuff. don't get him started. You with have that. to get him started. Oh, forget I mentioned that. We'll anything. come back to that. Yeah, no, you cannot jump from one to the other. We'll come back orbit. to that. So, so uh, uh, one of the things that distinguished Chris Hatfield compared with the other ton of Canadian astronauts right. is that he was very social media savvy. He mm -hmm. was. But you got that first. You. I was the first guy to tweet. First person in space right. to tweet from space. Correct. Okay. Yes, that was my that was my uh, my my contribution okay, so to social now, media. Okay. So now now Thank the, you. the first You're person welcome. to walk on the moon said one small step for man. Yes. One giant leap for mankind. Right. Okay. So your first tweet said what? Was a lot lot less poetic than that. <laughs> they made fun of what I tweeted on Saturday Night Live. They said the first guy to tweet from space and it was launch was awesome. And I added something to it. The launch was awesome. I'm feeling great. Adventure Lifetime has begun. But it was, they just said the launch was awesome. In 40 years, we've gone from what Neil Armstrong said to launch was awesome. If this guy ever meets uh, intelligent life, it's going to be, geez, dudes, look, aliens. <laughs> okay. So I got, I got made fun of on signing live email well, for my You kid. deserved it. We'll give you some poetry Thank lessons. <laughs> so uh, what my records show is that 541 people have been into space. This okay. is a pretty exclusive club. Yeah. And you're, so you're... I'm one of them. You're I one guess, of them. In there, yeah. Okay, 541. Right. And aren't many th lists anybody is on where there's only 541 of them? Just right. I get. And, uh, sure. Not, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah, saying. Not very, yeah, 538 people <laughs> went to only to Earth orbit. 24 traveled beyond low Earth orbit, and 12 walked on the moon. So that's right. the. So my, my lament is that of the 541 people, only 12 stepped on something other only, than Earth. Only 12. Right. Right. Only we'll 12 started on that. And, and we're starting don't to lose them. them. They're getting older. We don't have as many of them around. Send them back. So, no, Chris, so Chris Hatfield. <laughs> They'll live forever on the moon, no? No. That's a different movie. That was a, So, so uh, Chris, is, is, he's Canadian, we established. Yeah. And it is rumored that when Canada changed their $5 bill yeah. from initially having hockey players on the back, and I've, I'm quick to right. note that... Canada really did not need to be reminded that they like hockey, right? Yeah. So that was, that was prime, prime real estate to <laughs> yeah. swap out. Uh, and they put the Canada arm on the, ba on the back of the $5 bill. And yeah. there's a space-walking astronaut there that he said is him. No, that's him, yeah. No, wait, 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 wait. Let's check. Wait, it excuse has, me. Well, no, it let's, doesn't have to look. be him. There's other Canadians out of space. Well, but I'm pretty sure. Well, hold on. Hold on. Let's, Why, does it have a mustache? Take a look. We can say he's got a really cool mustache. Hold look on. For let's us. take a look. <laughs> Who is going to say that that's Chris Hatfield? You can tell. Look, see, no, you can't tell. If you can, can you zoom that in? <laughs> so, it's him. It's him. I'm yeah. sure it's him. Okay. You know what's Although a little spooky to me about that yeah. picture? Is this menacing, out of focus maple leaf coming from space? <laughs> yeah. What the heck is that? <laughs> and he's trying to escape Houston. <laughs> so Chris grew up on a farm, farm boy. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he he's became, just like Captain Kirk. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he's from Iowa. Yeah. yeah. Captain Kirk. Why do you know that? What do you mean? 
Oh, excuse me. I didn't, I didn't know it was a stupid question. Oh, sorry. sorry. No, uh, I Captain just... Kirk isn't a real guy. <laughs> Captain difference. Kirk is amazing. Chris Hadfield's sorry. the real dude. I, uh, I watch science fiction, so I know <laughs> the stuff inside it. So, uh, so let's find out. I mean, not many people have walked in space, and he's been in space and, and the yeah. like. So uh, I, I had to ask. He came through town, and I yeah. nabbed him. Stuck him in my office, Good. and I had to I had to ask him questions about cool. what made him become an astronaut, growing up in Canada on a farm. Let's find All out. Right. I decided to be an astronaut when I was a kid, and uh, I'm a Canadian, and there was no uh, no role model. You know, there was no Canadian astronaut, no Canadian astronaut program. You know, and I, I just thought, well, <laughs> that's kind of hard. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was thinking, well, what you know, what do you do? How do you do this? Um, and I, I just so I looked to the uh, the American program. I looked to my heroes of Neil and Buzz and Mike Collins, and they were uh, engineer, fighter pilot, test pilots. And I grew up on a farm, uh, you know, with tractors and machinery, and so I so thought engineering sounds. You good. relax the definition of what a role model was, to not have to constrain it to Canada. I, I, ex I expanded role model. Expanded yeah. the definition. I, but to me, it sounded interesting anyway. You know, I knew that they're geologists, astronaut with Harrison Schmidt on the moon, and, and there were doctors and things, but... Uh, Isn't it sad that, you, that that was all in singular? The geologist astronaut. <laughs> well, we I went was, to the freaking moon, I and we nine. count one geologist among I was, them. I was nine at the time, though, so <laughs> the numbers were really small, of uh, course. And... Uh, and so it's, you know, and astronauts fly, so I learned to fly it, and, and it all sounded interesting anyway. And of course, the odds of being an astronaut are so tiny that I wanted to do something that would lead to other things that sounded interesting to me anyway. So, so yeah, test pilot was always the intent, and then see what happened. So Mike, how'd you become an astronaut? Uh, I, uh, I dreamt about being an astronaut. I was a little boy, and watching Neil Armstrong and Buzz walk okay. on the moon when I was six. Uh, but uh, unlike Chris, I kind of forgot about that dream until I got older. And once I got out of college, uh, I, uh, I decided that's what I wanted to try to do. Went to graduate school, got my PhD, and started applying while I was in grad school. So you'd be as a mission specialist, which is Correct. what they call the academic Right. Branch. So Chris, Chris went so, you know, so, the, the pilot route. So he's the right stuff. Yes. He's like Hal Jordan. And then what are you? The wrong stuff, <laughs> apparently. You're setting me up. What else no, would I say? He's fighter pilot. He is. We he's learned a cool about fighter. the fighter pilot. He's got a really cool mustache too. He's You've yeah, got to work that, that, that mustache. That mustache is clearly a disguise. It is a really cool. No, it's real. I've tugged on it. It's no. It's a real mustache. He's Canadian. Let's find a little bit more about Chris's background. Yeah. Because he's into seriously dangerous stuff. Correct. Let's he was a test out. pilot. Yep. As a test pilot, I had we had one friend die a year for like ten years. Ooh. Qualified people because that was a dangerous profession and we did it every day. Fly in space once every six or seven years, so at least the frequency of risk is lower. But when we look back now to what the risk was on my first shuttle launch, the risk of death during ascent was about one in 38. We thought it was a lot better than that. But now learning everything we knew, it was an extremely risky thing to do. But you just, you go, okay, this is going to be risky, but it's worth it. Now my job is to not die doing this. How could we spend the next three years learning so much about this that no matter what happens, we have a plan and we're going to react so that we improve our odds of surviving. And I take it that since you are here with me now, you didn't die in any No, I came close a couple of times. Um, but, you had uh, to parachute a few times? I've never had to jump out. Um, I've come close. I, I hit a, I was doing a test at Patuxent River, Maryland, just uh, over the Chesapeake, and we were calibrating this version of an F-18. It's 50 feet above the water going 550 knots and hit a seagull. 
Um, mm. And if, if he'd been a, an inch or two over, he would have come through the windscreen and killed us both. But he just went down the left side, did a bunch of damage to the airplane. But, you know, a couple of close calls like that. So I've been both... A really seagull at, at really 550 like, miles an hour. Yeah, it's a cannonball at that point. Yeah, it yeah. didn't do the seagull any good, but uh, the airplane and I survived. Why? So that's not even a fault of the airplane. I mean, when I think of oh, the risk that no. fire pilots take, I'm not thinking they might fly into a seagull. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's a real risk. <laughs> and, you know, some of the riskiest things I did in spaceships uh, are the random ones also. You know, the the peppering of, of debris from natural and man-made from space. It's something you just can't do anything about, but it's a definite, measurable, perceptible risk. So, Mike, yeah. what's the most dangerous thing you encountered? Um, Launching into space was pretty scary. Would I, debris fly past you or uh, you? you? I never saw any debris come at us, but there was evidence of it. Like, for example, on the Hubble, you can see this down at the Air and Space Museum, we pulled out the wide-field camera, and the wide-field camera has an exposed radiator on it. And when I first saw it, and when it back on Earth, was at JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab, and it was peppered with little holes. So these are micrometeoroids. Micrometeoroids. It wasn't, yeah, they, they cratered it. They didn't so while you're hole. spacewalking, you could get hit by something. On the, Why on wouldn't the, you always be hit by something? Uh, because the, it, it doesn't, it's not constantly coming at the same place. Okay. It's not like a, a rainstorm constantly. Right. But every once in a while, something will come. Did this scare you? Uh, no. Y yes. Actually, what do you mean, no? I mean, we, we, you, you were, Invisible the thing is, bullets in not space. at the time. So yeah. we talked about it a lot, about what might happen. We took, you take precautions. You practice rescuing each other. Uh, you go through your training and understand what that risk is. But when you're out there, you don't want to be worried about getting hit by a rock. You no. Know, you worry about doing your job, and okay, then if so something you happens, you react you, to it. You knew it intellectually, but Absolutely. you didn't feel it emotionally. No. Because you right. had to get the job done. No, right. Chris Hatfield was in the space station for five months, and during that time, he became hugely popular for sharing his experiences via social media. More on that when StarTalk returns. We're back on StarTalk. I'm here with Mike Massimino, shuttle astronaut extraordinaire. You like that? Can I? Yeah, that sounds okay. right. I wasn't going to say anything. Keep going. <laughs> Keep that that going. was really good. <laughs> I liked it. And Eugene yeah. Merman, my co-host, comedic co-host. Thanks for always being here. So one of the things that distinguished you as well as Chris Hatfield in this episode we're featuring my interview with him, mm -hmm. uh, is that you were both social media savvy. Yeah. He, he perhaps a little more than you. Oh, way more than I was. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was the first to tweet and did some Twitter uh, messages, but, but Chris took it to a whole nother level. A whole nother yeah. level. Yeah. So I checked the, uh, what the, uh, your Twitter numbers just before we began. Uh-huh. Just... Now, he, we agreed he's the right stuff because he was the shot fighter pilot. Cool guy. And, yes. you're, and he's got the mustache. He's got the stash. As you do as well. He's got he's the stash. I got, got a stash. Yeah. Uh, this is, people said this is like a, a 1970s porn stash, you know? <laughs> really? what they all had back then. I don't know who's telling you that. I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but Catfield has a cool one. He's got, he's got a, a cool one. So mine's not cool. I know yours is cool Fine. as well. I used yeah. to have these big mutton chops. They were totally in style in the day <laughs> for like for a few years. But I had to say, I took them out for Star Trek pointies. Uh, but with, with the social media, yeah. uh, he ended up uh, crewing uh, 1.26 million mm -hmm. Twitter followers. Yeah. So I asked Chris, what's it like to have flown before social media and then fly mm -hmm. in the era of social media? Times are different. So I just asked Chris to reflect on the difference between then and now. 
when you're asked to do something on behalf of a lot of people, how do you share the experience? What's the right way? On my first flight, I would grab a camera. This is in 1995, a Hasselblad with 70 millimeter film in it, right? Take a picture of someplace. And first thing is, well, was that a good picture or not? Did I get the F-stop? Did I get everything just right? I don't know. So you, you bracket it, you hope. And then you get home, and a few weeks later, they have this big roll of film, and you look and go, what the heck is that? And you go, I think that picture's okay. And then they make you a print of it, and you go, yeah, that's a nice picture. I'd like a slide, please. And then they make you a slide, and now you have this little tiny slide of some place on Earth. And now, how do you, how do you show that to the person that it's interesting to? Now on the station, just with that's the old days. With social media, you can grab one of the cameras on board, take a picture of someplace, go click, pull the chip out, stick it in the computer, and on Twitter immediately say, not just to people from that place, but around the whole world, say, "Look at this! Look at this place!" And the power of that was amazing to watch. Stuff happens so fast on a space station. You're going so quick around the world, or on space flights, and often you you kind of go. That was amazing, but I don't have time to think about it right now. I'm going to, I just have to shelve my reaction to that thing. I'm going to maybe take pictures of it or something, and later on I'm going to think about it. And I still... So it's uh, delayed you know, emotional investment. You have to. You have to. You can't keep up. It would just overwhelm you if you tried to keep up emotionally with what's happening, especially during a shuttle flight. But even on a space station flight, if, if, if you and I were by the big window of the space station... And, I, and we went around the world once together. What would I show you? What, what would, hey, you know, look at this. Look what's coming. Look up ahead at, at Mount Tanaka. Or look, wait till we get to Tokyo. Or look what we're going to see of London and then France 15 seconds later. Cool. Would you say that social media has boosted public interest in space? I think I, think I look so, at these Twitter yeah. numbers. Uh, it's, most astronauts have a Twitter handle, right? Yeah, just about and, every one now. Just yeah. about every one. NASA, at NASA, has right. 8.7 million followers. Yeah. Uh, the Mars Curiosity rover, the rover has 1.8 million followers. More than Hatfield or, I mean, not yeah. as many as you, I Mo would think. Most of them are bots. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but the, the great thing about this media, as, as Chris said, is that one of the frustrating things uh, is, as an astronaut, there's not yeah. very many, but one is that you, it's, how do you share this experience? Buzz Aldrin had to write a letter, give it to a horse, the horse had to run it back to Earth. <laughs> It didn't work so well. <laughs> now we can do it a lot quicker, and, and it's easier, and it's streamlined because uh, photography uh, cameras have gotten so great. Portable. Hey, portable. He described when he first took those images with a Hasselblad. Right. My first man. And you, you know, you're trying to, it's manual focus. And we would goon up those, goon is a, is a national term. We would, sure. we would mess up those pictures. Like, oh man, that picture didn't come out. We could have figured out what goon meant terrible. in context yeah, goon, with that goon, We gooned yeah. up a lot of photos uh -huh. with that. So with a, now terrible. we have these great, now we have these great digital cameras with a lot of pixels in them. And you can take this amazing imagery for enjoyment, but also for so science. So not even from, an astronaut can mess up the photo. Not even an astronaut can <laughs> okay. mess it up. And a lot, of the, a lot of the pictures you see of the Earth, I think almost all of them now are coming from the space station. So many photographic objectives are hit by the space station now, astronauts. What's interesting is not all Much the different. great fun imagery are pictures outside the space station. Mm -hmm. Some actually took place inside the space station. Yes. In fact, Chris Hatfield made a video on the space station that became a viral sensation on YouTube. More on that when we come back to oh, Star Talk. Sleep, grocery shopping, themselves, just a few things working moms seldom have time for. And during tax season, you can add 
taxes to their list. So for all you working moms, make the easy switch to H&R Block and have an expert make easy work of your taxes. H&R Block guarantees your taxes are 100% accurate and your max refund or your money back. Plus, with their no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even have an H&R Block Tax Pro do your taxes in a block office or online from the comfort of your own home. Can your current tax guy promise all that? When you're buried under life's to-dos, let the experts at H&R Block stay on top of your taxes with a return that's right on the money and your biggest refund possible. Because tax season after tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Descriptions of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. We're back on Star Talk. Of course, I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Eugene Merman, my comedic co-host, Mike Massimino, in the Star Talk family, my favorite astronaut. I'm pretty sure of that. I should double-check, but I'm pretty sure I'm that's I'm the only true. one in the house right now, so it's okay. So it's okay. Yeah, you don't have to tell anyone else that. Uh, two-time shuttle astronaut. Uh, never been to the space station, though. No. Yeah. So uh, the, the shuttle is not as large as the space station. So no, not even Even close. if you wanted to do fun things, you're limited to just... Sort of yeah, the, yeah. The, the seated this area. Is, this is true. Yeah, yeah. So, but yep. Chris was on the space station. He was. He could fly. And we we've already established that he was pretty good with social media. Oh yeah. And he recorded a video mm-hmm. that went viral. And it's the first music video from space. Let's check it out. A sample from his whole video, yeah, uh, where it's it's a Space Oddity, yeah, by David, David Bowie, right. And if you listen to the words of that, I mean, it's quite compelling. And it's and I remembered hearing that, and I said, this is an artist singing about a future we don't have yet, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I, I that was sort of a force operating on culture mm-hmm. that I hoped would have continued, and that we'd all be on Mars today, yeah. 
but yeah. that's Ziggy like, Stardust yeah, is the reason yeah. we would like to go. <laughs> so, so, so here's the data. So it's obviously Space Oddity by David Bowie, first music video ever filmed in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, 24 million hits on YouTube. Wow. 24 million. Not, yeah. not quite as high as Gangnam Style, but no? that's up to that's 2 billion, but oh. it's a while before we get All there. Right. Maybe uh, if he'd only danced like a horse. <laughs> <laughs> We would have more science funding. <laughs> That's a debrief item for NASA. Yeah. You need more of that. So do you think people, why, why do you think people resonated so much? Because he shot a music video in outer space. <laughs> oh, <that's why. laughs> so what I wanted to know from mm-hmm. him is, how the hell did he get a freaking guitar in space? Yeah, did that cost like $8 million? <laughs> Let's find out. It's a really good guitar, though. <laughs> Let's find out. How did this man get this guitar in space? The NASA psychiatrist and psychologist put the guitar on board because uh, there's always been guitars on space stations. The Russians had one on Salyut, and then they had it on Mir. I brought a guitar to Mir in 1995. But so you've been guitaring in space for decades. Well, I've been a musician my whole life. But when I got to the International Space Station, they had already put a guitar up there. They brought it up on the shuttle in the summer of 01. And so it's been up there for 13 or 14 years. And... Um, it, it's just a little guitar, had to fit, you know, it's a parlor-sized guitar, but it's a good one. And it gets played pretty much every night. By, really? By, there's lots of astronauts who are musicians. Really? And it's really nice to have. But not all of them had a 22 million hit video. No. Of, <laughs> that was just bizarre. I, I got to hand it to you, that's, you know, you picked the right song for that. As soon as people heard there was a musician in the space station, there was this social media clamoring for, well, you got to cover Space Oddity. And uh, I was thinking, I, who covers Bowie? Why would I ever do that? Besides, the astronaut dies at the end of the song. It's yeah, not a good yeah, song to play. Right. But my son said, uh, you've got to. Everyone really, you know, do it for everybody else, not for you. And I got him to rewrite the words so that the, the astronaut lived at the end. And then I made an audio of it and then got friends to put the, the instrument underneath. And then our Evan weighed back in and said, it's got to be video. You're on a space station. It's got to be video. So one Saturday I went around and made the video of it and then he edited it with a friend back on earth and as you say it it's beautifully edited and it's great it's it's exactly what people wanted what i think people needed i think i think we grew up in an era where the astronauts were not that but i think it's also an interesting crossover you know between fantasy and and sort of uh fanciful visualization and fiction with reality and for the first time they completely cross over on board a spaceship and Seeing culture that way for the—it's not just robots doing experiments someplace weird. It this is us in a new environment looking at our own culture. It's poetry, song, yeah, and storytelling, I, science fiction. I think that's why so many people Reality. found it found it a little bit fascinating to see, and it's a little so bit fascinating. Times. Yeah, it's crazy to see the result. So it's not the first time music has been played in space. The, 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 no, the golden yeah. record on Voyager has music on it. And so that's intended for aliens to go upon mm-hmm. retrieving the spacecraft. In fact, it's one of these. I wore my... Uh, what do you spa- got there? I got everything. <laughs> Every square is a different sort of space probe. When you have aliens, a Hubble on that one? You must have Hubble on there. Uh, no, there's a pre-Hubble. Oh, okay. My ties go way back. But I have Voyager here, clearly. All right. It's this one. It's obviously that's Voyager. Cool. Yeah, that's just what I'm saying. Got it. Just yeah. Obviously <laughs> Voyager. Um, so it's, it's got a record with sounds, music mm-hmm. that uh, from all around the world, Eastern and Western music mm-hmm. and things like heartbeats and sounds yeah. of, of life. Yeah. They're going to be aliens when they come here. They'll be blown away by Radiohead and how far we've come with yeah. our music. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, uh, so, so he plays music in his spare time. What do you do in your spare time? 
uh, when I'm in space, uh, well, John Grunsfeld, you know, a, good, a good friend of ours, as an astronomer. An astronomer, an astronomer. another so another John and I astronaut. were more or less glued to the windows. The other guys were, I don't know what they were. They were like watching movies. Remember, they were like, listen, I'm up there looking out the window with Grunsfeld, and yeah. my friend Drew Foisel yells up, hey, Maz, come on down. We're about to watch Nacho Libre. I tell you what, I'll watch that later. You watch Earth go by at 18,000 right. miles an hour. So these are badass other astronauts that don't have to look at Earth. Right, they're, they're going like, to watch. Well, watch Nacho Libre. Great movie. But not what I was going to do while I was in space. fine, great. But the thing I was going <laughs> to yeah, say, yeah, Neil, great. No, great, no, yeah. Really, yeah. But I, I saw the movie. It was okay. Yeah, yeah. Not compared to what we were looking at. But <laughs> what I was going to say, looking out the window with, with Grunsfeld, it is the real stuff that you're looking at. They're, the, the stars don't twinkle. They're perfect points of light. And for hours... Atmosphere distorts atmosphere, the right, image. Right, you, you can see the Magellanic clouds. You can see all the constellations. And I had John there, an astronomer, he and I just like, oh, he could point stuff out to you. He was—I don't know if he was making it up, Neil. Yeah, and then you could but he was saying, radio. "Look, there's this," and now I'm like, "That's great." It was just—he's a, he's a, a legit astronomer, right? Yeah, John so being Grunfeld. up there with and being up there with your friends and doing stuff nice. like that. Nice. Did not want to. Did, did not want to move. From Imagine the clouds are the two nearest galaxies to the Milky Way, visible primarily from the southern hemisphere, mm -hmm. not close enough to distinguish stars within them, right? Uh, just far enough so that all the stars make one puddle of light. Yeah. To Magellan, who first recorded them, they look like clouds. Yeah. And so I said, I see clouds in the sky, yeah. and they're still there, and then they're still there, and they're still there. Yeah. And so they came to be known as the Magellanic Clouds. Yeah, I want to go to space with you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, so next, we'll hear about something few of us ever get to experience, and that's living in zero G. When we come back to Star Talk. You're watching Star Talk. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. I got Mike Massimino, my favorite astronaut. And Eugene Merman, good, always good to have you here. Listen, uh, tell me about zero G. And why do, why do some people call it micro G? Because every calculation I've ever done in physics tells me if you're in orbit, you are in identically zero G. So what's this micro G stuff that everybody's talking about? I don't buy that. Well, there still is a little bit no, of- you're uh, in orbit. I don't, uh, you're in orbit. You're in orbit. But there's it still like a you're little. In orbit. There's still. <laughs> there's still. A, there's, well, there's actually. Well, there's a lot of gravity still pulling on yeah, you. Yeah, of course. You're going so fast. Gravity continues out too. Right. But in, in free fall, there's no net force of gravity on you, and you're in, you're in free fall. That's I think what that orbit just, means. That's what Isaac Newton determined maybe, in Principia. 1587. So, oh, so you're telling me it's actually zero G? I'm telling, now, I, I'm, I've yet to have someone convince me maybe that there's some. Maybe they're trying to cover their ass. You know what I mean? Maybe <laughs> a little bit. What's the difference between a little bit zero there. and micro? I mean, I get it vaguely. Micro means there's just a little, yeah, a little yeah, trace but, of gravity What's the debate? You? Why do you think uh, NASA one calls it micro gravity. Right, exactly. And as a physicist, I call it zero G, because that's what orbit means. I'll tell you what it is, you ready? If, if I cut the elevator cable in a, in a, in a and you're in the elevator, Yeah. you fall, the elevator falls. If I put a scale under your feet, the scale is falling, everybody's falling, scale reads zero because everybody's falling together. You're in free fall, okay? You got that? Yeah. Got yeah, that, I, okay. I got, yeah. Let's do the Newton experiment. We're on the top of a hill. You send out a cannonball sideways, it falls. What? Take the cannonball, drop it, it falls, right? Give it sideways motion, it still falls. The cannonball is weightless the entire time because it's freely falling to the earth. You just gave it some sideways speed. Cannonball don't care. It's falling towards Earth. You throw it a little farther, it goes farther away from you, around the curvature of the Earth. There is a speed with which you can 
launch the cannonball where it goes completely around the earth and hits you in the back of the head. And it is weightless the entire time. So if you cut an what? elevator in space, what happens? <laughs> in space. <laughs> what about the, maybe a little bit of the drag, maybe? The real issue here is if you're weightless for a really long time, what's it like to come back? Back to Earth. Back to 1G. I asked him. I always wonder what it feels like to come back. And now you're back in 1G. It's brutal. <laughs> so why ever come back? Go stay up there. Uh, yeah. Gravity is the ultimate oppressor. I mean, it, it, it literally grinds everybody into the ground, you know, and and you really you get used to it when you live here, right? You're used to balancing your head on top of your neck and fighting gravity all the time. Is that what standing. I'm doing? I'm balancing uh, my well, neck. If you think about it. I, I never thought I mean, of No, I never you know, thought about think it. Think about doing a plank and the effort you do just holding your body. Plank. This, the plank is where you're, yeah, it's, sort of it's like a, a push-up push up. without a push-up. Uh, yeah, yeah, when you're up. But, you know, after just a little while, your body starts shaking with the effort. And all you're doing is just holding yourself against the, the perpetual uh, tyranny of gravity. And so when you've been weightless for half a year, you get so used to the, the effortlessness of that and the freedom of it. And when you come back down into gravity, it, it feels unfair above all. It's like, you know, like Gulliver with all the strings tied around him. But, but at the same time, your body's completely un, unadapted, unused to it. And your, your heart has forgotten how to pump the blood and lift it like a conveyor belt up to your head. And, and just lifting your arm and your balance system is shut down and your, your body's just a mess. So it's like, combination between maybe an illness and a car crash when, when you come back. It's not easy on the body. <laughs> so yeah, this is this is stunning. You know, there's there's a list of things you're not supposed to do when you return, and it's probably because someone did them and something bad happened. Like, you, you can't well, drive a car for three right days. Away. Yeah, you can't fly an airplane. Uh, but your vestibular system is messed up. You know, your, is your, your head... Eye movements as you're so there's astronaut instructions like up. on the side of a medicine bottle. Do not operate Do heavy machinery. Exactly. After no you heavy come back lifting. One G. Your spine is settling back in. So and you anything. told me that I got to hear yeah. it again. You you're, you have a different size suit for spacewalking. Correct. Than you do for launching into space. That's right. Because you grow. You do. Your spine elongates in space. You so gain you, about an inch to an inch and a half. So you really? grew an inch to an inch and a half in space. Yes. And you shrunk right back. It comes right back. So all that is settling. Your spine, your spine is kept in place by gravity, right? Or help be kept in place. It's kept in place by the spine, but also gravity assists. And when you when it elongates, when you come back down, it all settles. So that's why for three days you're not supposed to do any heavy. Do lifting. anything. So when you come back, do you like do you have a, a glass in your hand, just let it go? That and then that, that has break, happened. Break I saw stuff. it happen. Uh, Scott Altman and I were having lunch at crew quarters right after we got back, and uh, he's looking at me and you know, and he does like this and and he, and yeah, I think he realized once he went like this, and I was like, "What are you doing?" He's like, uh, uh, "Gravity." And I floated a, a a a bag of groceries out of the minivan because now astronauts drive minivans. Oh, you drive a minivan? Chris, Wait, what is Chris, Chris Hatfield drives a Thunderbird, and he has a cool mustache. So and, I, you, and you drive a minivan? I drive a minivan. Okay, so he really is the right stuff, and you're not. Now you're getting the picture. <laughs> okay. But I, I took out a, a bag of groceries and just went like this. And I was like, Oop. as soon as you let go, you realize what you did, but it's too late. Uh huh. Even on the two-week mission that I was on, I felt like I was going to fall over, and that was only after two weeks. Six months, like Chris, if you see the way those guys get out of the spacecraft, out of the Soviets, they're more or less carried out 
Just to make, now, now make we sure don't have okay. the record for most time in space. It's the, it's the Russians, isn't it? Yeah, if you look, if that's another yeah. thing you can go and Google, but if you look at the number of people with time in space, the Russians, Russians lead they that. don't have as many astronauts, they have cosmonauts, they don't have as many people that they send, and they send them more often for longer periods of time. Well, times have changed since the Cold War and the space race, and we'll find out what it's like to be an American on board a space station full of Russian cosmonauts when Star Talk returns. We're back on Star Talk. We're featuring my interview with Chris Hadfield, a Canadian astronaut who's got a mustache that you admire. I yeah. do. Never say anything about it's my like mustache. like a young Walter White. I like yours too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you, when you were in the Big Bang Theory, they mm -hmm. put you in a Soyuz mock-up. Yes. Have you never been in a Soyuz capsule, though? Uh, in training. I mean, yeah, I've been in a, in a Soyuz capsule Because you might have before. to escape. In case you have to go to, well, it, to just, land on Earth. Well, what, what, yeah, uh, yeah, more or less. But uh, even though my flights were to Hubble, most of my training, before you get assigned to a flight, you don't know what flight you're going to get assigned to. Oh, so a lot of my training, yeah. So a lot of my training was space station related. A lot of my spacewalk training, a lot of my systems training, and, and so on was, was, was mm -hmm. uh, station related, which included a little bit of Soyuz for me. Because we don't like to remember. I mean, it's there, it's not hidden, but mm -hmm. we don't reflect on the fact that we have a space program entirely because of the Cold War. We think, yeah. oh, we're Americans and we're explorers and we're discoverers. No, we were oh. at freaking war yeah. with Russia. We wanted to be able to throw things from them at them from space. Right, right. Uh, this is a man speaking who was born in Russia, so which <laughs> we is in that sentence. Uh, America. <laughs> I'm a U.S. citizen. I would, yeah. Where were you born? In Russia. <laughs> but then I escaped here to throw things at Russia. <laughs> so Chris Hatfield was once up in the space station and everybody there was a cosmonaut. He always had an American with him. He always though. had an American, just for, just Tom for safety. Tom Marshburn. <laughs> I know, I think him and, a drummer? Yeah, I think was he a drummer? <laughs> no, Tom was a medical doctor, but he had yeah. He always okay. had Russians with him. So it's interesting yeah. to know, what is it like to work with yep. Russian yep. counterparts yep. to who would right, what you a are mixed crew. in Russian space? Let's America. find out. Yep. How do you compare like American astronauts with cosmonauts? Uh, now, you were tired, and you can tell me now, oh, so you yeah. don't have to hide this no, anymore. I, 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 was I know NASA. you were party line for a while, but now you, you got a book out, you can tell the story. I, I was NASA's director in Russia and um, helped build Mir on my first flight. Mm -hmm. and, and so, Mir, the, the, the Russian the space Russian station. space station, and so uh, got to know the place pretty well. The, the filter that selects astronauts, um, it, you know, you, so many people apply, and they, you know, right size, right weight, right education, right... Uh, operational understanding of how things work. That filter, no matter what country it's in, tends to spit out fairly similar people. People with a with a similar sense of things, you know, people with the right mental horsepower, the right sort of physical attributes, but also the same sort of attitude. And it, it was interesting to see when I meet the Japanese astronauts or the German astronauts or the or whatever, the Chinese astronauts. The 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 similarities way outweigh the nationalities. And and so whether you're a cosmonaut or a taikonaut or an astronaut or a spationaut, depending on the language, um, there's there's all a, a, a kinship. You know, I can I share a story with you? I don't know if Please. I ever told you this. Uh, when I was on the Presidential Commission to study mm -hmm. the future of aerospace in the United States, mm -hmm. we went around the world to look at the, comp the competition and what people are doing. We went to Star City, Russia, mm -hmm. which is where they train the astronauts. Yep. So we're, we're commissioners, right? And we happen to have Buzz Aldrin with us, so they gave us, that mm -hmm. made them think a little more highly of us, perhaps. That's good. But, Always bring Buzz, that's <laughs> yeah, what I say. Always bring Buzz Aldrin. It helps every time. Yeah. But in any case, we go in there, meet, meet the head of the, of, of the, the, the center, 
in the morning. It must be 10.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And we're all crowded around a table, and there are translators there. And we had been to many other cities sitting around tables with Mm -hmm. aerospace people, and even places where I spoke their language. Mm -hmm. I don't know Russian from from Greek, Mm -hmm. but in that room, when it's 10.30, he looks at his clock and says, time for vodka, and he (laughs) opens up this cabinet, and glasses, you know, it's one of these, like, James Bond kind of things. Yeah. Vodka comes out. We all get, get pour the vodka, and I'm ready to, like, apparently my pinky went out, and that's, you're not supposed <laughs> to do that when you're, in, if you're sipping vodka. You, it's not manly, I learned. It, 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 I learned. They should have briefed yeah. you on that, Yeah, Neil. you should have briefed me. You're that's you're literally the first thing they teach in Russian at but, school. But yeah. what I'm saying is I felt a connection to this man mm-hmm. that I did not feel to any other official meetings that we had mm-hmm. all throughout Europe and the world. And I got to the bottom of it. And mm-hmm. it's simply, we as a country valued space mm-hmm. and we put people in orbit. Mm-hmm. So did they. Yeah. And I'm echoing Chris Hadfield's comment mm-hmm. that there is something that bonds people with that level of ambition mm-hmm. that transcends whatever might be yeah. a national yeah. boundary. Russians are very fun, don't get me wrong. <laughs> And that's what I found, and I've and yeah. never forgotten that to this day. Yeah, I, th- I think it's true. You I, have I can a common, hang with these people. You have a common goal. I was in Belgium, I was in France, I was in England, yeah. I could speak their language, and I wasn't thinking, let me hang with these people. They in are, Russia... The British are boring until after 5 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> then, the they go, then they go, then they go, Russia in the morning, yeah. England in the afternoon. Uh, exactly. That's the world. But I think it's right. I think it, I think it extends to other things, though, too, is, too, Neil, is that if you have a common interest, scientists around the world, uh, maybe comedians, too, I yeah. don't know, but you have a common goal, a common interest, and it, and it does transcend all the political issues. Well, could People, space exploration be the unifying thing for all of humanity? I think, it, I think this is one of the great advantages of space exploration yeah. is the international nature of it. And you become friends with, these, with, with your comrades, with your, your, your fellow astronauts, your fellow explorers, scientists, engineers, because you have this common goal. We're already on Mars, but not with people yet. When we come back, we're going to hear from my friend Bill Nye who's going to tell us why it's important to put humans on Mars. You're watching Star Talk. Welcome back to Star Talk. We're talking about going into space in a big way, maybe even going to Mars. We're already there. We got the Curiosity rover. But for some people, that's just not enough. For some people, like my good friend, Bill Nye, he wants to send people there. Let's find out why. For me, it's all about exploration. Just going out there and seeing what's up, up there in space. Space is where we seek answers to those two deep questions. Where did we all come from? And are we alone in the cosmos? We're talking about looking for signs of life on another world. Now, the next logical place to look is the planet Mars. Oh, we've sent spacecraft to be sure, plenty of them. But what our very best robotic spacecraft can do in a week, a human explorer does in about a minute. So we have to go, and the sooner the better. Now, since humans are doing the exploring, we'll make discoveries and we'll have an adventure. We'll bring our joy and our fear. We'll also bring our art. In the old days, we celebrated the singing cowboy as he rode the range along a new frontier. Well, now we have a singing astronaut 
who takes us on his adventure along a new frontier, the edge of space, beyond a new horizon. Well, Bill, you can never sit that guy down. We're chasing him all over the city. So, I, you know, this thing about going to Mars, I think it's, it's in all of our dreams. And I had to ask Chris Hatfield the same thing. Mars is, it lurks in our hopes and in our imaginations. And so let's see what he says. If there's a sign-up list, are you there? Are you on the list? Well, I want to be involved in the vehicle design. Okay. You know, there are no vehicles that can take us to Mars right now. Right. And we don't go for rides as astronauts. We are intrinsically involved with making space flight safe. And so go to Mars, sure, conceptually, it's easy to say, yeah, sure, I'd love to. I got the orbit. I can plot it out. <laughs> I, I'm there. Just go 40% faster on our way. But but I want I would want to be really involved with the vehicles and, and making sure that we had a reasonable shot. I don't want to die on the way to Mars, but I would love the opportunity to be part of that exploration. Well, Mars, that's of course, would be a very long journey with the engines we have now yeah. yeah certainly and if it's a sort of a, a free energy transfer there was like nine months or something there yeah, then you got to wait till we line up again earth and earth and mars we're so, never going to go that way so this, this these are years yeah and so they would we, you would need many guitars and many songs <laughs> many, many cans of tuna i think <laughs> yeah i really we we my prediction we will never go to mars with the engine technology we have right now it's like trying to set up uh, airline flights to Australia in 1920. Impossible. You know? Unthinkable. We, we just we don't have the Couldn't technology to make it safe enough that we can ever do it. Uh, we need we need to go from propellers to jets. We need to go from string wings to to metal wings. We get we got to invent a bunch of stuff first. And there's no rush to go to Mars. There's no there's no urgency. The Earth is a concern, but it's not horribly threatened that we have to abandon it. I think it's going to be incremental from station. That'll be a that's a thirty year project from station to the moon. That's probably a fifty year project, and then eventually station international space station. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then eventually to Mars. So, Mike, you want to go to Mars? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Wouldn't you like to go? Wouldn't I'd like, like to, to go. go. I'd bring the whole fam. Yeah, yeah. Be, it would be get a, like a Netflix a account. I'd be good. But yeah, no, I I think it's a, it would be an extraordinary. I have uh, a slightly different voyage. reason for sending humans to Mars than Bill gave. Mm -hmm. Bill's absolutely correct. The human brain eye connection can figure things out way faster than a remote-controlled robot. Right? Yeah. So there's some there's an, a point of efficiency there. Plus, we can discover things that we're not programmed to have right. to notice the, the way a, a robot might The be. rover goes really slowly. It goes on really Mars, slowly. It? I mean, painfully slow. Painfully slowly. And it's got to be semi-intelligent because it, if it gets to a cliff, yeah. it was a 20 minutes communication time for the, at no, the no speed good. of light yeah. to say, watch out for the cliff. Yeah. And then it's... That's why it has to go so slowly. Right. So, right. yeah. Okay, so yeah. I, I say we need to go because that is, well, if it's only for pure science, you might not need humans, but mm -hmm. that's, I don't think that's why we ever went into space in the first place. I agree. It was, a, it was advancing a frontier of discovery, and the people who did that, we build statues to them. We, we honor them. We name schools after them, and I don't know any statue built after a robot. Or high school. I can't wait. I can't. <laughs> no, I just do. I, I look at history of stat statues. They're statues of explorers, also politicians and and military people. And but some eagles. In there, in there are explorers, and I, I don't think our urge to honor explorers is any different as humans today than it has ever been, and so I value that as an enterprise in addition to the science that we would conduct. So uh, that, that's uh, that's my two cents. Eugene, Mike, thanks for being on. And Chris Hatfield, what a guy. I am Neil deGrasse Tyson. I've been your host. And as always, I bid you to keep looking up. <laughs>